this is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The biggest change between this version and previous seasons of this podcast is that there are so many new ways to get involved with the Regenerative Skills community and fast-track your learning. If you're ready to take the next step, I've created a wealth of resources at different subscription levels to fit both your time and financial budget. There are resource packets that accompany each episode, full, unedited interviews, free book giveaways, invitations to live panel discussions with experts, and bi-monthly skill-building calls to explore solutions, connect with support groups, and share your journey. For those of you who want more personalized guidance, I even have a couple of openings for one-on-one consulting. This weekly podcast is just the beginning. Find the subscription that's right for you through our Patreon link on the website at regenerativeskills.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. Now, on this show, I've often taken a strong focus on the actions that we can all take to restore ecosystem function and productivity, whether it be planting trees in an agroforestry system, repairing the hydrology of a landscape, or building our homes with natural materials. And I've centered around these topics because, frankly, they're the ones that I have the most experience with and I can speak about with some confidence. But there are also many other angles on regeneration that are equally important. Now, many of you will agree with me that as essential as it is to get out there and work in nature directly, planting trees, for example, is only useful if there isn't someone right behind you to come and chop them down. Worrying about how ethically your food is sourced doesn't do much good when we still waste a third of it. Oftentimes, the harm of the industries and actions that we inadvertently support more than undo the positive steps that we fight to take. That brings me to the focus of today's episode, which is on regenerative investing and the compelling story of Marco Vangelisti. My name is Marco Vangelisti, and I'm a mathematician, came to Berkeley something like 35 years ago, and the first job I got is working for a company that was developing quantitative models for the quants in Wall Street. We've long been told that we as consumers vote with our money. The decisions that we make about what to buy is equivalent to what we support and what we want to see more of. But most of our daily shopping is a drop in the bucket compared to the amounts of money being invested in speculative markets and commodity trading. This is the money that often determines the expansion of industries and new operations. It's the banking and investing sectors that are funding the destruction of our planet. But I'll let Marco tell you how and when all of this connected for him. Fast forward 20 years and I found myself working for one of those quants. You know, we developed quantitative models to... Uh, basically invest in emerging markets. We had uh, a fund that was doing very well. In fact, we were the fund with the best track record over 10 years around the world among the funds that were investing in emerging markets. And I remember one time, you know, we we had a spectacular year. Our portfolio went up 40% in one year and our clients, mostly endowments and foundations, were very happy with our performance. And then when I looked a little bit more closely at the portfolio, I realized one of the companies that had the best return that year was a Malaysian palm oil company that had destroyed tens of thousands of acres of forest in the Borneo and replaced it with a monocrop of palm oil plants. And they also got a lot of carbon credits uh, that year because they were planting trees, forgetting the fact that they destroyed the, uh, the forest. 
And so that was for me the moment when I realized that, wait a second, I have been contributing money to those environmental foundations for their good work protecting habitats of endangered species around the world. And I was finding myself in my professional capacity managing the same money and investing it in a company that destroyed the very habitat those foundations were created to protect. That was the disconnect. It's like, wait a second, what are we doing here, right? And so this basically revealed to me the extent to which financial returns are extracted, how a lot of finance operates uh, from the principle of taking value where you can find it. And usually somebody else is paying for that value, either, either you know, workers not being paid enough or, or ecosystem being destroyed or other things like that. So that's when I left the finance industry and you know, decided to um, take a big turn. Well, so let's talk about that turn now. Um, in leaving the financial industry that was your bread and butter and all the things that you had studied and become good at, that must have been a, a daunting personal experience. What motivated you to shift career paths and see that there were better options in front of you? Well, at the time when I left the industry, it was not the prospect of better option that that made me leave, right? Because I had no idea what I was going to do next. And in fact, I don't know if you, you probably still remember 2009. Uh, it was a very difficult year uh, from an economic standpoint and leaving a very well paid job was not easy for me, but I simply said, I couldn't be part of this anymore. And so when I left, then I really wanted to, A, understand the large systems. You know, how does the financial system work and why did we have the financial crisis of 2007 2008 turns out was due to the collapse of the shadow banking system i mean very few people know about banking even fewer people know about shadow banking and the next thing i did is i wanted to learn more about not only the systems the large systems but also how to change society so i joined a bunch of movements the occupy wall street i was one of the founding member of the slow money movement. I took a permaculture design certificate. I joined the transition town movement, the public banking movement, right? I, so I was trying to expand my understanding of the world. And what one thing that I realized is that a lot of the people that want to change society don't really understand some of the key systems like the money system, the banking systems and the financial system. And I realized, wait a second, not everybody who's part of this movement have my training. You know, I spent 20 years in finance. I have an MBA, I studied the monetary system and so on. And so I made it my task for initially to share my understanding of those large systems with the people that wanted to transform society. So that's was, uh, and at the time I was doing it mostly as a volunteer. I would speak to anybody who would listen, frankly. <laughs> So that, that's how I started my effort called Essential Knowledge for Transition that comes out of the transition movement. And it's really understanding how the large systems operate so that we can you know, intervene and change them. What are some of the key concepts to understand to, to be able to follow what we're going to explore later on in this conversation about how to invest regeneratively? Well, a lot of people don't know much about money. And specifically, they don't know how money comes into existence. If you ask people who creates money, they will either say the government, which is true, they creates the metal coins in your pocket. 
Some people say that the Federal Reserve creates money, which is partially true. The Federal Reserve prints the dollar bills that you have in your pocket. But by far, the vast majority of the money we use is electronic money created by banks in the process of lending. When they loan money, they create the money they lend. And it's a little bit shocking to understand, uh, but a lot of people do not know that. And in part, money creation by banks is what affects the business cycle and financial crisis. Because banks tend to lend in excess during good times and then refuse to lend in hard times, therefore creating these big swings in the economy. So that's one thing that people don't understand. The other important point that people don't understand about investing is that they have a direct impact, impact on society and the ecosystems. I mean, I, I glimpsed a little bit of that, you know, when I was looking at the portfolio and discovered this company that destroyed the, you know, forest in the Borneo. But uh, there was a larger study published in, I think it was 2013 by the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity. There's a group by the UN that try to quantify in dollar terms, what is the dollar value of the natural capital we're using every year in conducting our economic activity worldwide. And what they found is that every year we were using seven trillion dollars worth of unpriced natural capital to subsidize really our economic activity at the time you know when they, they looked at the year 2009 and at the time the gdp on earth was 75 trillion so all the values of goods and services created worldwide was worth 75 trillion and yet we were taking seven trillions a year from the natural capital to subsidize that and so that's one thing that people don't understand is a lot of the economic growth is predicated on destroying the very natural capital on which our long-term survival depends. And therefore, a lot of our financial returns are predicated on the same. In fact, the interesting thing about the finance system is that it extracted both from the natural environment and from the economy. So for example, how could you have you know, the economy shrinking in 2020 and the financial markets go through the roof, right? It's basically an expansion of that process of extraction. So those are the things that people usually don't understand. Money creates banks, uh, sorry, <laughs> banks create money. Uh, you have a business cycle that is driven by credit creation by banks, and also that our investments are extractive and we extract a lot from nature. And kind of just a little side question here. Why do you think that we haven't put any kind of economic or monetary value on the ecological services that we are destroying in order to subsidize the, the human economy? Well, because nature does not pay us for that. I mean, have you received a bill from nature for pollination services, right? Have you received a bill from nature for climate regulation, for um, you know, soil fertility building over the last 10,000 years? So you know, you have a tree, you can cut it and sell the wood. It's a free resource for us. It only costs us you know, the cost of extracting it. But nature built that over thousands of years and is not charging us a price. I mean, it will eventually, <laughs> in terms of probably, uh, uh, you know, potentially having a planet that is not very habitable for us. But uh, that's the ultimate price. It's not um, something that is con um, conveyed to us in a dollar form. And unfortunately, you know, if you think about 
the indigenous populations that we nature as and so they had basically a cultural way to preserve it once you introduce modern thinking and capitalism and so on what you have is uh, you have a process of commodification of everything uh, capitalism com commodified both labor and nature and so all of a sudden you can sell wood you can send land you can sell labor and so as soon as you put a dollar value on something that you can extract for free and nature does not charge you for that you're going to take it uh, so my neighbor is cutting down a tree. So you might actually hear <laughs> noise. I don't think he's doing it for the lumber. He probably wants some more sunshine or something. But uh, there is no price that nature, um, you know, charges us uh, for for taking a tree down. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Like natural systems have no need for token currencies. The interactions and exchanges are based on much more tangibly valuable things and services. But let's switch focus now and look back into various forms of investing. Marco, you've created a classification that outlines different stages of ethical investing based on awareness. Could you explain that? The way I like to classify investments are as follows. Most of the investments we make are unaware and possibly extractive. So if you don't know where your money is, chances are somebody else is paying for your financial returns. So that's unaware and extractive. Then the next level is aware where you at least know where your money is. And you can do that when you, for example, buy individual stocks. If you buy you know, shares of Apple, then you know your money is in Apple or in Tesla. So at least is aware. Now the question of whether that investment is no harm depends in part on your own philosophy or beliefs. So if you say, hey, I love Apple, and they do beautiful phones and they you know, produce this great computers that I love, you know, of course there's no harm. Or some people might say, well, look at the business model of Apple that requires you to change your phone every year and create all this electronic waste and extract all these rare materials from the earth. Or look at the working conditions in Foxcom, you know, the big uh, uh, manufacturing plant where most of the phones are made. And a few years ago, they were putting nets outside the windows because people were jumping to their death. <laughs> I mean, the conditions were so bad, right? So you could say, well, maybe Apple is not exactly a no-harm company, but that is a decision that you would make on your own. Now, the next level is what I call positive investment. And I used to call it impact investment, but uh, the term is used widely, and I believe not all impact investments are positive investments, meaning a lot of impact investments, people are not really aware of what they do out there. You know, they might hear, oh, great, there's a solar installation, you know, project in Mexico. Must be good. Must be an impact investment. And then you look closely, you find out that they displace indigenous populations or provide no benefits to the local community, right? They might still be extractive. And so I use the term positive investing to indicate an investment where you are aware, you know, it's doing no harm, and it's actually trying to solve an environmental or social problem. And maybe I'll give an example of that. And the last category is what I call restorative. And this is in between investing in philanthropy, where you're using capital to really make amends and fix the problems that capitalism created in the first place. 
And so it is aware, it's no harm, you know, it's solving a social environmental problem, but the expected return is negative. I mean, you net of risk, you know, on a risk adjusted basis, you don't expect all your capital to come back. And those things could be, you know, some local investing uh, could be considered, um, you know, restorative investing. And uh, one thing that I forgot to mention, the positive investments still have a positive risk adjusted return. So you expect your capital back on average and some return. So those are basically a classification I like to use, you know, the unaware, aware, no harm, positive and restorative. I have a course starting in May called Towards Aware No Harm Investing. And one of the exercises is building a personal investment compass. The idea is that sit down and think about what you want to see out there in the world and what are the things you would like to participate in improving. And more importantly, what are the things you don't want to participate in with your investments? So for example, if you care about global warming or you know, the prison industrial complex or you know, healthy food or immigrant populations, you know, whatever you care about, you know, make sure that your investments are not uh, creating more of the problem you want to see solved. And so the personal investment compass acts then as a guide both in terms of what type of restorative investments or impact invest or positive investments you, you might make and also what you will move away from. And so, you know, I, I make this example of uh, the, mm, uh, one of the companies in the S&P is a big weapons manufacturer. And if you ask the name of that particular company, Ingon, I think it's called, uh, let me see. Uh, it's called Huntington Ingalls Industries, right? If you ask people, hey, do you own Huntington Ingalls Industry? You know, they're the biggest uh, builder of, uh, you know, military ships and nuclear submarine and uh, guided missile destroyers. People say, oh, I don't think so. I don't know. But if you own an S&P index fund, you do own that company. And every missile that is fired, you make some money. And every, you know, uh, so... That's, that's the, the problem with, you know, using mutual funds to invest. And of course, that's probably going to be what most people will do and moving towards ESG and social responsible fund is a good first step. But I think if we really care about, you know, regeneration, if we really care about, you know, having a viable society and a viable ecosystem, we need to move way beyond mutual funds. And we need to think about what our investments are doing out there in the world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I'm struggling to think how most people listening to this, many of whom might be completely new to investing like myself, can make any impact in this huge system with more money than I can even wrap my head around. Well, there are, first, do not underestimate the actions of millions of people. Uh, cultural shifts can happen, and they can happen rapidly. I mean, if you think about one of the recent cultural shifts in this country is around, for example, the use of recreational drugs. I mean, if you're thinking about just 10 years ago, it would have been almost inconceivable, right? Inconceivable that a number of states would say it's okay to smoke pot. I mean, that is a major shift. And we had the shifts like that about the role of women in society. I think now there is a whole discussion about, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, um, you know, minorities and so on. So cultural shifts can happen fast. And so I am trying to 
inject little ideas, little memes out there about the importance of paying attention to our investments. Uh, the first thing that people can do is, you see a lot of the big changes in society, we need to wait for the government, we need to lobby government or large corporations. But when we're, when we're talking about your own investments, you can actually decide tomorrow not to be participating in the suicide economy, right? And so while you might say, hey, my $1,000 invested with uh, uh, an S&P index fund is not really going to make a difference, the question is, do you want to participate in what may be a general ecocide, right? I mean, do you want to participate with your money in the problems you want to try to solve? And if the answer is no, then that little uh, shift that you can make with your $100 or $1,000 away from you know, the extractive economy can be very meaningful to you personally, but in aggregate can eventually, you know, make us reach the tipping point where a cultural shift can be propagated much faster uh, across the world. And I think there is now more and more attention paid to the role our investments are playing out there. There is a demand for social responsible funds. Again, I don't think that goes far, uh, far enough. Uh, people are mindful about their buying choices and how that is affecting you know, the industry, for example, the demand for organic or for you know, locally grown food and so on. So um, I would say, of course, each individual action is not going to change the world, but it's going to change your world and your relationship to it. And then when enough of us follow suit, we can actually transform society. Okay, yeah, that makes me feel a bit more optimistic about being able to affect change in this area. But I'm still a total novice to investing and wouldn't even know where to start. What advice would you give to a beginner like me with no previous experience on how to start using small amounts of money to create change? I would say, you know, as a starting point, make a small investment in C-Note. And there is another company I like, which is RSF Social Finance, Social Investment Fund. In, um, in San Francisco, and they basically fund uh, social entrepreneurs and uh, nonprofits operating in you know, the arts and Waldorf schools and so on. So they, they invest in really cool stuff. And the, the nice thing about both C-Note and RSF is it's open to everybody. The minimum investment is, is pretty low. I, I think in the case of RSF it's $1,000. In the case of C-Note, there is no minimum. But the key is to then read the quarterly newsletter that they put out so that you feel good about what uh, your money is doing out there in the world. And that would be a good starting point. Again, the other one would be, you know, take my course if people are inclined to learn about this new space of aware and harm investing. So I'll present more, more options and how to think about it and how to frame it. So tell me what I would be able to do with the knowledge and training in your course. Right. So the course is uh, taught in mostly in May through five interact interactive sessions. Uh, and really, there are various steps. The first one, I guess, in the first couple of se sessions, I'm trying to connect the dots and show people how the financial system is implicated in a lot of the problems we really care about, including the destruction of the environment and, and the problems in society. The second part is really about showing people how really money is created what the operations of the bank uh, and the Federal Reserve ha have done 
uh, in manipulating financial markets. So that if people think that, oh, they can get our, you know, at least 8% return from the stock market going forward every year from now on, I think they might be sorely disappointed. And that's one part of the course is really challenging capital market expectation, challenging uh, what financial advisors are assuming we are going to get through traditional investments. And then we'll you know, talk about developing a personal investment compass and we'll introduce the concept of integrating you know, financial and non-financial considerations. So yes, we have to look at risk, but we also have to look at the risk of not having a livable planet a few years from now, right? Or an economy that is all uh, dominated by two players or Amazon, right? <laughs> and so integrating both risk and return considerations with non-financial considerations. And then we're gonna look at examples of investments and how to uh, determine the portion of your portfolio that can be devoted to restorative investing. Uh, so I, and I think that most of the value is in the interaction with people. We have a number of amazing people already signed up for the course and we're very looking forward to that. Um, and in terms of time commitment, I mean, there is every week is gonna be an hour and a half Zoom. And then there are some readings and some discussion maybe another hour per week or so. So maybe we're talking about three hours per week for the next, uh, you know, for the five weeks of uh, May. And I think people will be able to get a lot out of it. There you have it. Marco's insights really got me thinking about how money can be leveraged for positive change once we divest from destructive industries and go beyond the vote with your purchase narrative to invest in initiatives that can create new options for a healthier and brighter future. Marco and I spoke a whole lot more than I was able to fit in this episode. He gave me a lot of specific investment opportunities that illustrate the restorative options and concepts that we covered, and we even got into a long chat about the return on interest of restoring landscape hydrology versus carbon sequestration. So if you've already subscribed to the Regenerative Skills Patreon, you'll have access to the full unedited conversation that I had with Marco. And if you're not, you should check out the different subscription levels, all of which come with learning materials like the resource packet that accompanies each interview, and it'll help you to fast track your learning. Of course, if you're short on cash, remember that our Discord channel will always be free, and there we'll be discussing all kinds of related topics with other regeneration enthusiasts like yourself, and even some of the featured guests are on there as well. This week's question that we'll be exploring in the chat are... How confident are you about what your money and your investments are going to support? What opportunities are available to put your resources to work in creating the world that you want to see and inhabit? I really look forward to hearing your insights and observations on this soon. A special thanks to Marco Vangelisti for sharing his knowledge and experience. You can check out his blog and find the course that he teaches at ek4t.com. That's letters ek number four and t.com or you can find the link directly on the show notes for this episode at regenerativeskills.com and for listeners of this show you can also get a 20 percent discount on marco's course towards aware and no harm investing by typing the discount code rs20 at checkout thanks to dan Liebowitz for this week's original music if you'd like to have your own original music featured on the show or just want to get in touch, you can email me directly at info at regenerativeskills.com. Now until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.